Welcome. This episode is a live recording of a session from Finance Podcast Week's live program. You can check out all of the recorded live episodes and sessions, along with exclusive episodes from top finance podcasters and experts here on the Finance Podcast Week podcast and on the Podbean app. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetization platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience on Podbean Live, where podcasts come to life. For everyone listening, you can start your own live stream for free on Podbean Live. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcast constitute a solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And now, enjoy the episode. So welcome back, everyone, to Finance Podcast Week and our September Roundtable hosted by Eric Schlein of the Intelligent Investing Podcast and The Eric Schlein Show, with Andrew Sather of the Investing for Beginners Podcast and Jason Rivera of the I Love Value Investing Podcast, as they discuss what's been going on in the world of investing and, if we have time at the end, answer your questions. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week has live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive recorded episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free, so make sure to check that out. Download the Podbean app and follow the Finance Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time when we go live and to replay all of the live streams from all of our events. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And now we'll hand it off to our host of this live stream, Eric Schlein of the Intelligent Investing Podcast and the Eric Schlein Show. Hello and welcome. Thank you, Norma. And uh, morning, guys. Morning, Andrew. Morning, Jason. Um, morning. For you guys listening, I am Eric Schlein and I do host uh, the Intelligent Investing Podcast. So we're going to jump right into it today and I think just talk about you know current events going on and also for listeners who do like to hear this, you know, Things that we might be looking at right now, things we might be buying, or things that we think about the stock market in general. And this is kind of like a roundtable, you know. Um, you could say that, you know, in print media, Barons was was the sort of the first one. You know, they did they've been doing their Barons roundtable for who knows how long. And and you know, I'm I'm hoping that you know in the podcasting world that you know that this is paving the way for a tradition here in the podcasting financial community of doing these of these roundtables so with that ado um you know one of the things as my role is a host you know i'm going to ask you guys a bunch of questions and engage but also you know i'm also going to share personally stuff some of the stuff that i'm doing my own thoughts as well so 
while I am the host, it's also going to be like a conversation. Like, you know, the three of us are just, you know, at a bar having some drinks and, and talking about stocks and investing in finance. So that with, yeah, yeah. Without ado. So, so why don't we start with Jason? So Jason, this is your first round table. So welcome to, to this. And, um, you know, for people who don't know a little, you know, who you are, just why don't you share a little bit about your, uh, your background and, and kind of who you are and, and, and what had you want to be on here? Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Um, thanks, Norma, as well. Um, my background is in, uh, I host the, or I don't host the, uh, that show. I write on the value investing journey blog. I've also written the book, How to Value Invest, and I host my own um, investing podcast. I love value investing. Uh, I teach people how to invest well um, using value investing principles. And what um, and what uh, my biggest kind of claim to fame is the in the first nine years of my career, I produced 23.5% average annual investment returns in the portfolios I manage, um, which is very good. Awesome. Awesome, man. So right now, are you... I know you're teaching, you do teach people right now, right? You have those master classes with students and all that. Yes, correct. So what do you, what do you, what are you teaching right now? Have, have things changed for you in terms of what do you see as current marketing conditions compared to how things were a few years ago? You know, what do you just sort of general, generally like overall, like how, how do you see things and what are you teaching new people who are new to the field coming in to how to look at things? Yeah. So what we do, we do a lot of in-depth case studies um, is what we do. Um, And when I say in-depth case studies, we dig into stocks that students bring up that they find interesting that they're maybe either investing in or thinking about investing in. Um, The next one we're doing is Supercom, a small, tiny $20 million company that uh, one of our students wants to look at. Um, And that's, as you know, Eric, we've talked about how I love tiny <laughs> nano caps. Um, so that's right in my specialty. And um, yeah, so that, that's what we do. We do, we do in-depth valuations a lot. We do teaching on valuation techniques, uh, terminology, all that stuff. In terms of how things have changed in the last few years, yeah, it's, it's gotten definitely harder to find undervalued stocks. Um, incredibly hard to find undervalued stocks. I haven't bought a new stock in six years. Um, because nothing meets my ultra strict criteria, which I will not bend because it works. Um, so it's definitely gotten harder. What's when you hear when you talk to your students? What are some of the? Those are really two part question. What, what what are the general questions that you get? Like the ones that you hear repeated over and over these days, and what are some stocks that people want to know about that you hear from you know more than just two or three people? So the, I'll answer the second question first. The stocks I get asked about pretty consistently are anything meme stock related, GameStop, uh, GameStop AMC, those kind of things. Um, anything related to blockchain, Bitcoin mining. I get uh, cannabis. I get asked about these kinds of things um, on an almost daily basis at this point. Um, not even just from students, from family, friends. Um, colleagues, should I invest in XYZ stock? What do you think about this? And I'm sure you guys can <laughs> chime in on that. I've started to not answer those kind of questions for most people unless they are serious about investing because if you're right, then 
you make them feel bad and they don't like that. And if you're wrong and the stock goes up and then, <laughs> then you're in a kind of a no win situation. So I've just kind of stopped asking or answering those questions in full honesty. Interesting. Andrew, what about you? What are from, from listeners of your show, what stocks do people have most questions about? It's an interesting question, I guess, because the context of our show, we're completely for beginners. So, you know, we get, we feel a ton of emails and we, we try to answer on the shows, the questions that we feel would have the broadest reach. So we'll do a range of personal finance questions all the way to individual stocks. And because Dave and I, my podcast co-hosts, we're both value guys as well. So some of the things, if you go back in our archives, we've shared a lot of tips on, you know, how can you find value stocks for yourself? So we'll get people who, as an example, we've talked about how to use a stock screener, you know, basically um, narrow down a list of stocks by having a set criteria of basic metrics. Like I want to have a price to earnings ratio below a certain point. So we'll tend to see kind of like the the flavors of the day, if you will, on stocks that tend to tend to pop up in a lot of various screens. We, we try to avoid saying, hey, this is the exact screen you should use. Um, but we see a lot of those. And I feel I have to be careful when it comes to answering those questions because kind of like uh, Jason was saying, you don't want to be discouraging the people and, and it's always a learning process, but I think there's particularly when the market goes higher and higher and higher and you're using more traditional metrics, the, some of the, the, the worst companies can be near the bottom of those filters. And so right. as an investor, you really need to differentiate, am I going to buy value in order to get that quick reversion to the mean and then get out of the stock? Or am I going to buy value for the long term to get not only growth over the long term, but also that that expansion in the multiple. So it's it's a tough kind of dichotomy, but I love answering them because it kind of shows me where people are at as they learn this journey of finding value stocks. Yeah, well, one of the things that I've talked about on my show and I've also talked about in my letters to my investors uh, has to do with stock screening and you know one of the ways where i see you can generate alpha in in this environment which is you know i think maybe andrew and i we, we've talked about this before but you know jason for the same reason that you love you know buying these nano caps right you know you don't often you usually don't have any analysts following them and i think generally smaller companies they're um, more likely to be mispriced. Now, sometimes that means they're they're also going to be overpriced, right? Um, you know, I remember looking at a an, an OTC security, um, and and their main business was like looking for Bigfoot, right? Or so like you know that might have been a little overpriced that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's plenty of tiny, tiny businesses that I've seen that I think are severely undervalued and. But when it comes to another way to look at undervaluation, I think it actually is finding value in ways that screeners don't pick things up, right? You know, where traditionally, um, you know, if you look at, say, the, you know, the early 1900s, right? Tradi- you know, in the early 1900s, book value mattered a lot. You know, I would say today, for most great 
businesses, book value is meaningless. You know, if you look at Google, right, or Facebook, the book value literally has nothing to do with that business. And not a surprise over the last 20 years, the price to book ratio has been a pretty horrible um, metric for value, where if you looked at 100 years, it's been a pretty wonderful metric for value. Um, and then you even look at things like, you know, earnings, right, where, you know, some like look at the company like Amazon, right? Like where Amazon will intentionally not show um, a big profit um, or, you know, a company, one of the companies that, you know, I invested in Trupanion, you know, when I invested in them, they were an insurance company trading at eight times book value and not showing a profit that would never have shown up on a value screen. And actually by any sort of, you know, gap accounting metric, it would have looked severely overvalued and actually was highly shorted. So I think when, if you're able to find businesses where they actually look really expensive on a stock screener, but if you actually look under the hood, they end up looking really cheap. I think that's a really interesting way um, to find value because that's not what most people are doing. Most people are looking just the financials. And I think in this day and age where you have not only people like us, but you have you know, major institutions who are running numbers all the time, a lot of that has been arbitraged away with, with all the data that's out there now where, you know, if you went to the 1950s, it was a lot easier to find, you know, the company trading at six times earnings where there was nothing wrong with it. So that, I don't know, Andrew, what do you, what do you think about that? What I'm saying? I, yeah, I love that as kind of like the evolution of, of trying to really find great undervalued companies. You know, Charlie Munger used to talk about, I guess he, he still does talk about all the time about this idea that you always want to stay curious. And so when you mention these opportunities that show up that maybe won't show up in the screener, if you're not staying curious and, and really just trying to research about certain companies, certain themes, certain industries, if you're not doing that research, regardless of it leads, like, let's say I'm looking at a company that, you know, originally I would think, okay, maybe this company um, it looks attractive to me. You do the research, you figure out, okay, maybe not so much, but within that research, maybe you've landed on a competitor or a peer, somebody who's kind of horizontal to that company. And then if within that research, you land on another company, I feel like that's kind of a way that you might naturally be able to find those kind of situations. Like you mentioned, where from accounting metrics it seems very overvalued you don't really you know by definition if you're always looking at the accounting before you get to learn to learn about the business you'll never learn about these kind of opportunities so that's another thing i think that's an interesting thing to balance and i think it, it becomes easier to do as you become more experienced but balancing you know do i want to stick to what i've always been doing versus stay curious and try to find opportunities more creatively I, th I think it, i think it needs to be both you know i also think that one of the the problems in sort of modern finance is that gap accounting was not meant for so like i think amazon's a great example of this where like gap accounting was not designed for companies like amazon right like companies like amazon didn't exist when gap accounting was created so like this is I, I love this example because I think it speaks to where there's an opportunity with with businesses, but Amazon, everyone knows Amazon, so it's an easy case study to talk about. So you look at Amazon, right, and they they've spent all this money 
in R&D over the years, right? And if you actually look at Amazon's cash flow statements, almost all of their free cash flow, they plow back into the business, right? If you look at like research and development and you look at free cash flow, it almost lines up every year for like, you know, going back however many years. And what's, inter what's interesting is that on, from a gap accounting standpoint, all that R&D is, is booked as an expense, which goes through the income statement, where you could actually make the argument, and I would make the argument, that that's an asset they have been investing in and built up over time. So if you look at, say, um, let's say like a, like a tire, like let's say a tire, a tire company or something like that, right? You know, if they built a new warehouse to build new tires and invest in a new warehouse, that would show up as an asset on the balance sheet, right? As PP&E. Um, but Amazon invests, does research and development to invest in new technologies, but that gets booked as an expense. So if you were to treat those expenses as an asset, well, now book value looks a little bit different. Yes. It's, it's so interesting because Amazon has so many pieces to it, you know? So one piece is the fact that the way that they revolutionized the way we shop is they've taken everything that we used to have to drive to a store, obviously, and now we can get it online th through their website. I mean, if you look at the website now, it's so polished and it's so seamless. It's so smooth. But to your point, it took millions, billions of dollars in R&D to really figure out what the customer wants. I mean, right. even this concept of one click where, you know, I don't know of any Kindle people who love reading Kindle. Yeah. That just that was had to come from R and D. That was an innovation, and the culture there too. They they talk about Jeff Bezos used to always talk about how you know we're going to launch ten products. Maybe nine of them are going to flop, but the one that does well is going to pay for all the nine that flopped. And that's kind of that entrepreneurial culture combined with the fact that they're so close to the customer. They have so many millions of people who go on their website. Combined with the fact that so much of their stuff is digital. Um, makes it make sense for that business where a lot of traditional businesses, like you're saying with a tire company, you know, they're selling a commodity They're It doesn't matter how much R and D they spend on their website. If they're just selling uh, tires to the local tire shop, then yeah, they, they need the factories. They need the, the long-term capital and the very capital intensive nature of that, which, which most businesses can't get away from, but I think as time goes on, we're seeing more businesses that can get away from it. It's some interesting combination of technology, data, and being direct to customer. Yep, yep. So if I want to replace, like if I want to say, okay, what's the replacement value of Amazon, right? It's like the replacement value isn't in their, isn't in their, like their warehouses. The replacement value is, is all the years of R&D and then the data that's been created out of that. And what is that worth? You know, and, and yeah. And, and that's the replacement value, which is going to be a lot higher than quote unquote book value. And, you know, I did a, I did a podcast about this actually with Marcelo Lima at Heller House. And, you know, he was making the argument and they brought him on the show because he was one of the few people I could find at the time that, you know, could, could have a conversation with me around this was like, you know, Amazon was, was trading at 50 cents on the dollar of intrinsic value, even though it was trading at like, you know, over a hundred times earnings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Different way to look at things. Um, what are you guys finding in terms of? I know, Jason. I know you've said it's been hard for you to find things, but you know, 
Jason, is there anything right now in the market that, you know, let's say you were starting from scratch, right? You have, you know, $10,000 sitting around doing nothing. And someone's like, well, I don't want to just hold cash, right? You know, that's the depreciating asset. Where, where would you be putting your money today? And again, not in the but, you know, what, what do you see? Where do you see that there, there could be some opportunity right now? Um, one stock I am telling people to look at, again, not investment advice, as has been said a couple times, but not investment advice. Um, one company I have looked at um, pretty in-depth is Altria. Um, their if products guys, are... By the way, on the Intelligent Investing Podcast this week, uh, Altria, we have an episode with Jason and I going more into detail with that. So anyway, shameless plug, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, Altria, uh, for you guys who don't know what Altria is, they make cigarettes and tobacco products like um, Chew, uh, stuff like that. Again, I know a lot of people, when we go into this on the podcast, a lot of people don't like quote unquote sin stocks, but it produces so much cash flow. Um, it has a 7% dividend that is ultra safe um, and it's going to be around for years and decades and it has massive competitive advantages. That's, that is the kind of stock I'm looking at right now, especially with inflation rising or supposedly stabilizing. Um, we'll see if that's true or not. But um, yeah, I mean, it pays a big dividend, has huge competitive advantages, all the things I just talked about. And so that is a company that I'm telling people to research right now. Um, in full transparency, I do not own it. I used to own it probably eight, eight ten years ago. Um I do not own it anymore, but that those that a stock like that is kind of what I'm telling people to look at. And cigarette companies, I mean, generally have been able to offset um, declines with uh, raising prices. Is that correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, they can offset raising prices because their customers are literally addicted to their products. Product, yeah. And even if they weren't, I, every survey pretty much as far as I know, maybe in the last decade, I don't know if it was done before that, but at least in the last decade is that most smokers, they want to keep smoking because they like smoking. So, um, so it's going to be around for a long time. Um, this stock, not only because it can raise prices that continually keeps its cash flows high, but it also will withstand any kind of recession inflation because it can raise prices. Like if you had a pick between buying tips um, right, the inflation-adjusted securities versus Ultra. I think Ultra is a better is a better buy if you want to look to combat inflation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not a huge fan of tips personally. I've never actually invested in them because historically they've not done well. Um, I mean, if we get to a point where well, we're at eight, well, they're linked. They're linked to the CPI. Yes, correct. Right. So I guess the argument you can make is that the this is a whole other topic but you could say that maybe the government manipulates cpi numbers to actually be lower than the real inflation rate oh i 100 percent agree with that because i've actually read the data on the inflation and again i don't know what they do to average the 5.4 percent number but the individual products or the individual segments that they measured were i think most of them were above 5.4 percent. i think um, for example cars and vehicles were something like 11 12 percent um, back in, this was, I think July is the last time the numbers came out for that, July or August. 
Um, so they probably change now. But even before that, meat prices were up like 40% and they said inflation was like at 3% or something like that. So right. if, if you're uh, middle class and you're, the price of your chicken goes up by that much, like you, you're going to be like, yeah, not, it's not five and a half percent my, 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 my groceries. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of um, Altria, you know, if you take the 7%-ish what dividend yield, you know, let's say over the course of 20 years, let's say the business doesn't grow, but they can keep cash flow somewhat sustainable. What do you, what do you, what do you look at? Like dividend yield plus, plus, plus um, like inflation or like a, how do you look at like a rate of return that you could look at over, in, over, over like a decade or two? What I would do for a stock like this is, frankly, it's different from any way I would look at most other stocks. But what I would do to look at something yeah, like this, yeah. is I would subtract the dividend or I would subtract inflation at the inflation rate from the dividend to get the estimated kind of base level rate of return. Because in my opinion, you have to and uh, factor in inflation and these kind of things. Um, then I would add in their buyback percentage um, as well. And then I would hope... <laughs> Um, there was some appreciation, appreciation, but even if there wasn't, I would count on the cash flows and the price rises to continue growing the dividend um, and the buybacks. So what, what's what's that math look like? Um, that? By okay. my math, what we did on the um, on the podcast, I think it was, I think we came up, it was undervalued by like fifteen percent or something like that. And I think the math just in my head, I think the rate of return again after discounting inflation, so the alpha would be like three to five percent per year, something like that. Okay, got it. Interesting. What about you, Andrew? What are you looking at right now? Anything interesting? Um, oh, yeah, I'm looking at a lot, um, turning over a lot of the rocks for sure. A theme that you know, I I first recommended back in February of this year, and I think there's still value there, is defense stocks. I mean, they've had a bit of a run-up uh, year to date, but still compared to historical trends, it's still, you can make a lot of cases for undervaluation. And there's several reasons why they are attractive. Number one, their main customer is going to be the U.S. government. And so, you know, the U.S. government does not want to see some defense company becoming a monopoly. So they're going to spread out, you know, they bid competitively for these contracts. They're going to spread out their bids. They're going to spread out the various projects that they have. And so that, that leaves the top players really in a good spot of, you know, it's not going to give you some crazy return, but at the same time um, it's based on the valuation of when I recommended it, it it's definitely an attractive return. And that's, that's tough to come by these days. And so, you know, especially when valuations get so stretched, you got to sometimes be okay with, let's say, you know, low double digit returns and not really trying to hit it out of the park. And if that's the trade-off of, you know, I'm going to build a portfolio like that, that's, that's where the fish are right now. You got to fish where the fish are. Is yep. that a better alternative? And I, I tend to think so. There's there's significant barrier entry in that industry as well. It's it's not easy for an incumbent to just come and disrupt. I mean, you think of some of the stuff that they build between the fighter jets and um, missiles and all of these things that they build that are, you know take a lot of 
know-how they, they take expensive equipment it's, it's not easy things and you can't just you know the, the u.s military has a certain number of deliveries that they need and so you know a startup in the industry isn't going to be able to fulfill that for a long time they have to build incrementally and then the last kind of thing that's interesting about them is they're they're moving into space and so you know there's a netflix show about um it, it's a joke it's, it's like steve carell and they're they're kind of playing on the whole uh, space force thing that was assembled last president last presidency and it's basically us versus china and the netflix show but a lot of that kind of has truth and what we're seeing in reality and there really is a race to space because you think about how the satellites that that serve all of this data that we're just continuing continuing to produce and consume at exponential rates um besides other benefits of getting to space, it, they, the defense companies in general are building these products that can assist either in the defense of space or even just in getting shuttles to space, rockets to space in general. And so they have a lot of, they have like a growth story in that. They have a security in, in the kind of position, the unique position that their industry is in with how they earn revenues. And they've been attractive valuations for a while. Um, you could argue whether that's still the case today after running up um, in these past months. But, you know, comparing to the rest of the market, I think it's a good place to start for value. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll give one or two ideas that I, <clears throat> there are two that I own. But I think there's still some value here, and there's both sort of a special situation now. So one of them, which I have um, talked about quite a bit um, on the podcast and on other people's podcasts too, is the Los Angeles Athletic Club, LICO. Um, and it's an OTC security. Um, so you know, if you buy it, you don't want to use the market order. Uh, it's very thinly traded. And they own... Uh, two, well, they own three assets, but the two, the two big stores of value are um, the self-storage business, Storage West, which is most of the value in the company. And then they also have the LA Athletic Club, which for people who live in downtown LA all know what that is. And that in the Athletic Club, it's like an old school, you know, the Athletic Clubs were very big in the early 1900s and they've been making a comeback in the last 10 years or so with sort of my generation um and it's an amazing facility with you know fitness equipment and you know restaurants and you get membership and it's not it's it's like a low it's like a a high-end gym slash social experience and um there's it's cool they have a they have one uh they have a few cool clubs in philly as well um so anyway, it's interesting because they just announced recently, you know, the whole thesis, you know, buying it a few years ago, the whole thesis was you're getting one of the highest quality self-storage portfolios um, in the country and you're getting it at about a, you know, unlevered uh, 10%, 9.5%, 10% cap rate um, where, you know, that, that portfolio private market value would have probably been you know, maybe 5% cap rate or so. Um, so uh, literally just this week, 
there was a news report from an unidentified source. So, you, you, you know, you got to take this with somewhat of a grain of salt. Um, but there was an announcement that they are considering selling the self-storage portfolio, which as a personally, as a unit holder, I was delighted to hear that because, you know, the idea is, you know, the Hathaway family has been running this uh, business since, you know, well, they've been running Lego since 1880, but the self-storage business uh, is a lot newer than that. Um, but it looked like there was potentially some changes going to happen because the, the head honcho uh, retired at like 96 um, a few years back. And then uh, his wife, Karen Hathaway, she's, she's, she's getting up there too. I think she's in her late seventies now. Um, so the family uses Laco stock to, you know, pay themselves. They live off the dividends. Um, most of them are already very, very wealthy. Um, so to sell, they don't really have an incentive to do anything in a sense. Like they could just keep doing that for 20 years and live off the dividends where with someone like me, you know, I, I want to actually see some value realized. So that was a big deal to see that news article. The, the stock has popped a lot. You know, it went from around $3,000 a unit to around $4,000 a unit. But I think there's still a lot of value there. So, you know, there was a, there was an, uh, from April 29th is the article. So public storage, which is one of the big players in the self storage, they acquired, um, a smaller self storage company called easy storage. And if you look at the numbers and, and I, and the easy storage is a good comparison because it's actually a similar, very similar setup to storage West in terms of, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> similar, you know, if you go online, the, the, the rent for similar size self storage units is similar. There's build out space. So there, there's a lot of similarities and I think easy storage is a good comparison. So with easy storage, you had um, a little over 4 million um, uh, dollars in, in rent for uh, 4.2 million dollars in a uh, rent per square foot. So that led to a revenue of $80 million storage West has about um, 4.6, 4.7 um uh, rent square foot so they they have revenue of 75 million um it was acquired so easy storage was acquired at a three percent cap rate in this current market which you know if you look at listings on LoopNet or crexy you know you see uh similar cap rates for high quality self-storage then if you go a little bit lower quality self-storage it's like you know five six percent um so three percent cap seemed very like a very fair price in today's market so Storage West has um, about forty million in NOI. If you applied a three cap to that, you would get a say a sale of you know maybe a little over one one and a half billion in a sale price. Um, so if you took um, say one to one and a half billion in the Storage West property, and then you said okay, the downtown LA, um, you know Los Angeles Athletic Club say that's conservatively just if you just use you know um other transactions in the area you could say very conservatively it's worth 75 million they have 25 million dollars of debt about 168,000 um units outstanding it's units because it's a publicly traded uh limited partnership that would give you a unit price of about 7500 to 9500 um dollars per unit you know ish um so whether it's you know off by a little, even at four thousand uh, today, it's still a lot higher um, 
than the current market price and you have a catalyst. So if they sit, you know, if the catalyst is they actually do sell the self storage unit, that news article tends to, you know, confirm it being true. You have immediately immediate realization and that spread is huge. Um, if they don't sell uh, the self storage units, you know, you're still owning self storage properties um, that are very, very safe because they're not very levered um, at a huge discount to the market for, you know, the private market value and you get a nice dividend or just, you know, distribution uh, while you wait. So that, that's the thesis for Laco today. And I think it's a very interesting uh, special situation. Yeah, I love those special situations, you know, looking for that unlock in value, right? Where you can quite obviously see with some conservative estimates, the business is worth more if management would just act in a way that creates value for shareholders. Yeah, and I, and I like this because it doesn't depend on the management doing that. True, yeah. yeah. I mean, just completely anecdotally, um, I use a club here in North Carolina, it's called Lifetime Fitness. Uh -huh. So I noticed they're, they're moving to that where um, they're building like luxury apartments to integrate with their gym membership. So it's like, like you said, they're building like a lifestyle community. Um, it's not like a cheap membership by any stretch, but by far the best amenities in the area, super great amenities. If you have kids and you bring them in for the daycare, I mean, it's, it's really unparalleled. And from what I see, it seems like a great growing business. I mean, I don't think they're a public company, so I couldn't dig into the financials, but to get like an exciting growth driver on that side with, with the company you're talking about and then having the extra value realized if they do make a sale, that's plus the dividend. I mean, it, it sounds exciting all around. Yeah. So there's that one I like. There's also another one I own called, um, Cedar Realty Trust. I, I don't know. Are you guys familiar with that one? Doesn't sound you, familiar to me. No, you mentioned it offhand, I think, in one of our conversations, but I no, I don't know much about the business. Okay, so another interesting business. Um, you know, I I bought stock. It's uh, probably a little over a year ago now, or a year ago. Um, you know, it was during sort of the height of COVID. Stock it was down a lot. Um, it's grocery anchored retail and. You know, the big fear back then was, you know, they have some debt and if the tenants stop paying completely, then, you know, maybe maybe they don't stick around. Um, but being grocery anchored retail, it wasn't just like, you know, typical retail, right? I mean, it's a lot, lot more stable. Um, and, and cap rates reflect that. I mean, if you look at private um, market listings for grocery anchored retail versus regular retail, um, Grocery anchor retail demands a lower cap rate because it it, it does tend to be a bit more stable. Um, right, you just assume that you know uh, Walmart or Shoprite or you know Publix is gonna is gonna be a more uh, reliable tenant to you than uh, like a like a Nokia store, you know, or a Sprint store, or whatever, whatever the hell. Um, so when I was buying uh, Cedar. Um, Again, trading at a much higher cap rate than private market value. Um, but today, it's now a special situation. Um, so also, about two weeks ago, um, they announced that they were looking to potentially either sell the company in full or sell off a lot of their assets. Um, so 
you know, again, it's like, well, what would that be worth in the sale? So I took a look and, and being familiar, very familiar with the business, it didn't take that much time. Um, but so right now with the, with the current stock price of Cedar Realty, you know, you're getting it at about an 8% cap rate. Um, and one of the, there was a transaction in July, uh, July, <clears throat> and it was between a company called Kite Realty, and they acquired um, Retail Properties of America, which is another um, grocery anchored um, um, you know, business, and they own lots of grocery anchored properties all around the country. So that that transaction, which again, not going to be exactly the same because the properties are going to be somewhat different, but um, ballpark vicinity, they sold that, they, they bought that at a six and a half, uh, a six and a half cap. And even if you look at some of the properties that Cedar Realty has sold, um, they've been selling at a much lower cap rates than the current market valuation. I forget exactly what the cap rates were, but I think it was like five percent, five or six percent cap. That we're selling their properties at when they've done transactions in the not so recent past. <clears throat> so, in CDR, I mean, even even local to me in Philly, like there's two or three. I think there's three. There's two Shoprite um, anchored uh, retailers, and there's also a thing called Gerard Plaza, which has like a Save a Lot and a few other things. Um, but I, you know, I'm I'm local to some of their properties, and um, so anyway, you're getting. Right now, so let's say, so let's say the transaction does not go through. Um, there are so many ways to win. They could buy back stock at some point. They could slowly sell off their properties. They could buy or they could buy back stock. They could you know sell the properties or you know so so even if nothing happens, I think you still can do very okay. But if they do decide to sell the company or sell large blocks of the company in one fell swoop, what is that worth? Well. You can just do very, very simple math and say, well, it's worth this, it's, it should be worth a six and a half cap. But if you say it's worth a six and a half cap, that you get you get about 35, 37, something like that per share. This the current stock price is like 22. So again, one of those businesses where large spread, if nothing happens, you do fine. If something happens, you know, you you do pretty, pretty, pretty incredible. And 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 both situations are fairly low risk, in my opinion. Oh yeah, I so mean, it sounds like would it. Would you say? Like What's that? Would you say like um, special situations is a big part of your strategy? Does it really depend on you know what's out there? Are you trying to get a certain amount of special situations in your portfolio at all times? I'm not really. I mean, this is sort of like a weird thing where like two pretty large positions. Like both both CDR and um, if I look if I look right now at the portfolio and I mean they run up a little bit but you know right now like in the real time so in terms of the the assets that I manage for clients CDR is a is a is a ten percent position and uh, Laco is a seven percent position right so I mean they're not small positions um, and they both happen to have an announcement. Um, one week after each other. So, so I didn't, I didn't buy either of them as special situations. I just bought them as here. I'm buying, you know, real estate at like 50 cents ish on the dollar of private market value. And there's, and, um, and they're fairly low risk. I was gonna say, there's nothing wrong with it. I would say CDR definitely had some fleas at the beginning, but CDR wasn't going bankrupt with, with grocery anchored retail. 
um, in, the, in that situation. Uh, and Laco certainly wasn't had nothing wrong with them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if 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 you know, if I'm looking at situations, I I I like businesses and I like situations where there's a lot of unpredictability, right? You know, and Monish Pabrai, you know, he has that whole uh, term, you know, in the Dondo Investor, right? You know, heads you win, tails you don't lose much. And mm-hmm. so, so I'd say a lot of my portfolio is definitely in the spirit of that, where there's very high uncertainty. Um, so the market likes the discount, you know, uncertainty, typically people, people get scared of uncertainty. And with Laco, it was, well, maybe, you know, the, the future is very uncertain. They may never sell the self-storage units. The family just might slowly buy back stock over time. You know, it's it's not you're not even necessarily going to get liquidity. It's a weird corporate structure. There's all this weird stuff to it that people don't like, and you have no idea if anything will ever happen. You don't even know if the if the athletic club will ever fully make a comeback. Um. So and and you know the self storage units are kind of you know unlevered, so you're not really getting your typical uh, self storage returns. So it's not that exciting to have to have a 10% cap rate if it's unlevered because it's a 10% return. And then with CDR, the uncertainty was, well, how, will, their, will their tenants um, be able to pay back, uh, pay, pay the rent during COVID? How long does recovery time take? When will they be able to pay it back? Um, how, how much of it do they get back? Will, will, will they be in a situation where, say, COVID lasts five years and and all retail goes to zero. I mean, that's, that's pretty unlikely. But you know, they, you know, people were scared of anything that had retail in it, um, or and that had that any anything with tenants. We got clobbered uh, last year. Um, yeah, they're still kind of down. Yeah, t- for sure, for sure. But I mean, a lot. But but again, a lot of them have doubled. You know, since then, um, because some of that uncertainty went away. Um, so. But the so the upside was very 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 high, right? Laco and CDR upside was tremendous, but your downside was very well protected with real assets. So I I just I love I love situations like that where there's many 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 ways to win, and if nothing happens, you still do okay. I love that. It reminds me of uh, an investment I had. This was probably five six years ago uh, with Dole Dole Food Company. I found on, yeah, Dole. I owned Dole before they went private. Um, I was going to say, not public anymore, right? Okay. No, they're actually they actually either just came public again or they're about to come public again. Um, But yeah, no, they went private in a weird situation, which I'll probably get into in a second. But (laughs) this reminds me of Dole, and one of the reasons I loved Dole um, years ago, before they went private the first time. Oh, they literally just went public in July. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was gonna say I knew it was either they was coming up again or it was yeah. um they'd already done it. Okay. Uh, yep. But I found on their balance on their financial statements, uh, I think it was their 10Ks that they had around 500 million to a billion dollars in assets, land specifically in Hawaii, highly valuable land that had been depreciated off their balance sheet because they had owned it for I think like 100 years, so it wasn't even showing up on their value of their balance sheet at all. Um, so I found a huge amount of un or hidden assets on their balance sheet, which added an enormous margin of safety and to the value. And I think this might be wrong, but I think they were selling for like seven hundred fifty million to a billion dollars. Uh-huh. Um, at- so that added an, uh, an enormous amount of margin of safety. 
um, before they went private. And then there was some shenanigans there with the <laughs> then CEO. I think he was the chairman, actually, uh, David Murdoch, who was Dole was found to be doing some shenanigans uh, and manipulating the stock price so they could take it private on a um, on a cheaper basis. Uh, and that's not just allegations or, or that's not just um, speculation that had been proven out. They had they had they were. Jason, we losing you for doing that. What was that? I think we're losing you, Jason. Hello. Yeah, can you can you? I'm not, yeah, I can hear you guys. I'm not I'm not moving, so I'm not sure what's going on. Andrew, can you hear Jason? Okay. I can hear him now. Yeah, I think you cut off for a second there. Okay. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not moving, so I'm not sure what's going on. Um, but yeah, there was some shenanigans with the CEO and then one of the stipulations of them coming private again is he can't control any of the company. So, <laughs> um, that Laco situation and the Las Ve and, uh, that entire situation reminds me of Dole and I love those types of situations too. Interesting. Interesting. Andrew, what about you? Have you had any, uh, any case studies from your own investment history, uh, where you saw some something that you know other people didn't see you know other you know an undervalued piece of property or something you know a hidden asset and plain sight or you know any, anything like that that you can think of from your own investment history yeah i mean <clears throat> mine i guess isn't as exciting just because it's it's something you hear about all the time where it's like this idea of brand value and if you've if you have built the brand from it, from the beginning, obviously it doesn't show up on the balance sheet. However, if you acquire a brand, then it does show up on the balance sheet through goodwill. So I had bought Tiffany, uh, it was probably six months to a year before they got bought out by uh, Louis Vuitton. Mm -hmm. So it was just, you know, a simple undervalued stock brand was, was being undervalued. No assignment to the balance sheet on that brand. And you know, people were pessimistic on just kind of the outlook of luxury. You look at, I mean, the luxury market's kind of weird because, you know, some companies are, are seen to be much stronger than others. Tiffany wasn't commanding that high premium and valuation yet. You know, I can't think of a stronger diamond company with more brand power than that blue box than Tiffany's had and still has. Right. And so, you know, that wasn't, the kind of situation where Louis Vuitton finally paid a premium on what the market value was. And I was able to pick up a quick gain from the difference between where the stock was versus where they were acquired at. And so that was a pretty nice one. And this was, this was this, this was last year, right? Um, yeah. I, well, I think it was right before COVID. Yeah, you know, and it might have been. It might have been. I think. I think uh, the deal finally closed. You know, six months after COVID, something like that. I was able to. I, I sold a little early, so I didn't get the full deal price. I was maybe ten percent less than the final deal price. That was still a, a huge gain for me. Um, after yeah, that that was that that thing dragged on for a while. I remember um, it did. Yeah, I actually on 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 my pod, on my podcast, I had a guy on uh, Jeremy Raper, and um, during the coronavirus, where I mean, it's still going on, obviously, but like you know, during the height of it, uh, I had this corona uh, coronavirus investing series, and part five 
was on the merger art deal um, with with Tiffany and Co. Um, we mm-hmm. talked about that, but that that ended up being a whole a whole drawn out thing. I think it ended up being. It was yeah. It was real. It was really interesting because um, the acquirer was trying to say that oh we made the deal, but obviously conditions have changed, <laughs> and so you know they were trying to renege on the deal based on the fact that the the free cash that Tiffany was supposed to be able to generate is not the same because of COVID. Yeah, I was surprised they even tried to pull that off too, because I, you know, I, you know, Louis Vuitton they have such a good reputation for 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 dealing with other businesses that, you know, I, I thought that it was very short sighted to do that, and I, I I thought they were actually putting some re- reputational risk on the line by by trying to reneg that and to to make a few extra pennies. And you wonder what that does to the culture inside the Tiffany's. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, long term, it's like what it really, you know, if you're holding Tiffany's for the next 30 years, does the price of, you know, a few dollars difference, does that really change things? It's like, probably not. Right. But I, I, it could have left a sour taste in some people's mouths, especially for future companies that uh, might want to sell to them. Don't, yeah, that's don't, the, that's uh, the old Buffett thing, reputation, and that's how he gets all his deals. So that could hurt. That could definitely hurt them down the road. Oh yeah, I mean, if you're if you're someone who's thinking about selling to Louis Vuitton, it's like, well, are they gonna are they gonna pull some stunt with me if I try to sell to them? Right? Like, you got to imagine. Like, uh, like I, I think it was dumb them doing that personally. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then they lost, so it was. Right. I, I, th- I think they did get to renegotiate a, a small discount to where the original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like waste the time for a few and hurt the reputation in the process, and yeah, dumb. You know, going back to, to to real estate, I think there's a lot of interesting just general opportunities in real estate and just like you know private real estate too. Yes. Was that you, Jason? I said yes. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm actually. Um, so I, I said at the beginning, I've I've kind of been struggling to find something that meets my criteria in the stock investing realm because the valuation just keep going straight up. Um, so I've been looking at private businesses and commercial real estate, specifically um, sales storage, um, apartment complexes, and mobile home parks. Um, and the values are starting to creep up there, um, but they haven't risen as fast as the stock market valuation or residential real estate. So I'm still finding some decent deals. Um, I when Eric was talking about the uh, the cap rate earlier, I look for eight to twelve percent, um, kind of in that range, and that's starting to become very hard um, to do. Um, but there is, in my opinion, based what I'm on what I'm seeing and where I'm looking, there is more value in that arena right now um, than the oh, public if stock. You, if you're looking for eight eight caps, I mean, I still see I come across plenty of things that are eight caps. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you just said that yeah. like, find that hard hard to find. I don't I don't find eight caps hard to find. I must be looking in the wrong places. I, I'm 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 struggling a little bit to find eight caps to twelve caps. I I, I Well I'm not, I'm not buying eight caps. So I mean look, I, I would say maybe a few times a month I'll come across a triple net at least in an eight cap. Yeah. Ah, okay. So I'm looking I'm not looking at the uh, the office buildings. Um, so that's probably, that might be what it is. Oh no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about office. You can easily find office at an ACAP. I'm, I'm like on occasion, you can find some, some triple net lease tenant tenants, not leaving. And it's an ACAP. 
That exists. Interesting. Maybe I need to start looking at those kind of spaces because I'm in apartments, uh, mobile home parks, um, self-storage. I'm struggling to find um, eight, at least eight caps. Mobile home parks too? Really? Yeah, mobile home parks. I, uh, there I, was one. Once a week, I'll see a mobile home park in an eight cap. Okay. Well, let, let me back up. So I'm not struggling to find eight caps with uh, mobile home parks. I'm struggling after starting the due diligence to find a good deal because they want the crazy prices and <laughs> that's where the valuations are starting to go up. Not necessarily on the front end, but when the due diligence comes through and then I actually analyze the numbers, it's not really a true eight cap after I start analyzing the numbers. Yeah. Well, I think a rule of thumb that I've discovered, which like I kind of hate, honestly, like I think there's probably so much like there's, there's definitely a business to be created in the realm of like brokering because it frustrates yeah. me so much where I'll find like clockwork, like I'll, I'll find an ad, right? And it says, you know, here's a property and it's at a 10 cap. And then I do work on it and it's like a seven cap. Like it's not even close. Oh yeah. No, that and that's that's what I'm running into is that kind of stuff. And I'm glad you pointed that out because yeah, that's that's exactly because what I'm running these into. Brokers, um, they like clockwork will underestimate maintenance. Oh yeah, and deferred maintenance is maintenance is going to you think maintenance is going to be is going to be point two percent of the asset price? Are you kidding me? Yeah, well, yeah, I usually like, I, like an apartment I complex there. with maintenance of like a thousand dollars a year. It's like that's not even there's there's no way. <laughs> like, yeah. What? Well, and I don't know what you look for, Eric, but I typically look for forty percent operating expenses. That's or that's what I assume it should be, and if it's under that, and usually I'm finding it's like twenty percent. So that means there's massive deferred maintenance there's, and massive there's renovation needed. There's so many ways to look at that. Like I know some people do it like as a percentage of rent. I mean, you do operating expenses. Like yeah. I, I just do a rough calculation of like percentage of purchase price. Like I'll say, okay, yeah. normalized maintenance is going to be two and a half percent of whatever I paid for the property, and that will be a that will be a conservative number. It's not going to be probably more than that, but. When you take into account that, you know, in five years from now, you might need a new roof or, you know, like in any given year, it's not going to be that number. But say over the course of a five, seven year period, you know, that's 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 a conservative but somewhat realistic number, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's fair. And, too. and then I'll, I'll look at properties where instead of two and a half percent, I'm sorry, my dog just barked, but like instead of two and a half percent, it'll be like, you know, 0.2 percent. It's like not even close. Yeah, which means there's major problems with the property. <laughs> and major problems with the broker. Like, and I, yeah, but I think yeah. a lot of these brokers, they're just glorified salespeople. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like The amount of brokers I have spoken to personally that know nothing about real estate investing was a little terrifying since they're selling investment properties. Oh, yeah. No, I think you and I had this conversation, actually, um, that I've talked to brokers, and I think you said you had as well. Maybe this was a different conversation. Um, with, I had it with somebody else, but I've talked to brokers who didn't know what a cap rate was, didn't know what net, pro net operating income was, didn't know any of that stuff. And I'm just like, uh, terrifying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, 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 or like I'll tell brokers, I'm like, this is like, you'll even look at the numbers that they even give you and the cap rates wrong. And they'd be like, you know, on your ad, it says this is the 10 cap, but this is like an eight cap with just the numbers that you've given me, not even changing the assumptions around. They're like, Oh, Oh, I guess I have to change that. It's like, yeah, I guess you do. Yeah, no, I've I've run in that too. I've actually uh, talked to a couple of brokers down here in the Tampa area where I live, and I was like, these numbers aren't adding up. Um, and they either said something like that, or they said, 
well, here's how we added it up. I was like, okay, that's not, that doesn't make sense though. Well, can you give me, go, we have two minutes before we finish up, but what, how did, they, how did, they, can you give it a real example of that where like they added it up in a really bizarre way? Yeah, so, and I don't remember, this property was down here where I live, but I don't remember if it was the exact property or the exact numbers, but I, I pointed the numbers out from to this broker and it was, I think, two percentage points off. So if it was 10% cap rate, it should have been like an eight. And he pretty much just was like, okay, and thanks for letting us know. He didn't say we're going to change it. He didn't say we were going to do anything else. He just said, I, okay, I, thanks. I, I, I fraud almost, borderline fraud. I mean, Anyway, less long story short, for for you listening right now, if you if you're buying real estate for as a an investment, actually check the numbers because it's like the numbers you're seeing in an ad are probably overinflated. They're not going to be underinflated. Oh. I'll tell you that right. It's like you know, you if you if you ask a barber if you need a haircut, they'll probably tell you that you need one. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely don't rely on the pro formers at no. that they present at all. No, it's almost always overinflated. So anyway, long story short, guys, do your due diligence, whether you're buying a stock or real estate or listening to a podcast. Don't don't listen to what we're doing and then just take that as true. You know, we're, we screw up from time to time, too. Um, and if we change your mind about something, you're not going to hear about that in real time. So do your due diligence. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And I'll, I'll turn it back to Norma. Thanks, Eric. That's such a great place to end things today. And uh, before I read our outro, next month, uh, in a bit of a Halloween theme, we are talking about um, finance myths and horror stories. So that's something to look forward to. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this live stream, the September Finance Podcast Week Roundtable, hosted by Eric Schlein of the Intelligent Investing Podcast and the Eric Schlein Show, with Andrew Sather of the Investing for Beginners Podcast, and Jason Rivera of the I Love Value Investing Podcast. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week has live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive recorded episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free. If you joined late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters, you can replay this roundtable on the Finance Podcast Week channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can start your own live stream on Podbean Live. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site. Uh, <laughs> Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And as Eric said, just... Do your due diligence. <laughs> Thank you so much for everybody joining us. This has been a true pleasure. Eric, Andrew, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you as well.